0: Hey lovelies, before you get started, I wanted to remind you that the shopping experience on impactfashionnyc.com is like nothing that you have ever seen online. You can sort the collections by my suggestions for specific body types. You can sort by what's in stock in your size. And overall, you just get a really clear picture of what exactly it is that you're buying and with photos on a variety of different body types. So if you'd like to check out my modest designs that are available in sizes two through 24, you can check them out at impactfashionnyc.com. This episode is the first in a four-part series exploring breast cancer and BRCA mutations in the Orthodox Jewish community. Enjoy. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. Riff and on today's show I talk with someone who is BRCA positive about her story. She shares how she dealt with her complete shock of a diagnosis, why she opted for a preventative double mastectomy, what it was like to tell her parents, and how she learned to accept help during recovery. Herschel was among the first people to raise her hand when I let it be known that I wanted to talk about breast cancer and BRCA on this show. Having no family history of cancer, her diagnosis came as a complete shock. And since then, she has made a point of breaking down the stigma around this often scary piece of news.
1: I think I was one of those kids who were very inquisitive and very um, just observed everything around them and just knew what was going on and you know my mom would always say that she never knew if i was like really paying attention because i could be looking at one thing and hear a whole another conversation that was going on so i just feel you know it's it, i think i think it kind of stayed and is what i still do um multitasking knowing how to be able to have your attention in many different places so i think it's um it was probably not the best quality as a kid <laughs> Uh, because I used to get in trouble a lot for talking because I could pay attention to what the the teacher was saying, but my friends who I was talking to could not. Um, But, you know, it all worked out. (laughs) Um, At least I hope it did.
0: I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. Most of the things that we think are, you know, liabilities as kids tend to be superpowers as adults. Right, for sure. So uh, you have actually a very cool job now, which is going to tie into everything that that we're going to be talking about today. So uh, can you tell everyone what it is that you do?
1: Yes. So I am a medical recruiter for a market research company. So basically, I find doctors of a certain caliber, like not your regular primary care physician. I find like um, doctors who are published or who do clinical trials or who are medical directors of uh, their departments or their hospitals to um, do research and they get paid for their time so I get to schmooze with them. So I'm kind of like the matchmaker so I find these people to participate and um, that's basically what I do. So I find You know, I I find these like really high caliber doctors. Like if you ever really wanted to know who the best of the best is, you could ask me and I could find out so much information about them. And surprisingly, you can find all their contact information if you dig deep enough. (laughs) So you can, you you can, you can email almost any doctor that is very, very successful because their information is out there.
0: Good to know if anybody ever needs to stalk a doctor, we know who to call now. Yes, (laughs) for sure. So, and it was through this that you, you know, we became connected uh, because I wanted to do this series on breast cancer. And, um, and I just kind of put it out there. If anybody wants to talk about this, you know, let me know. And you raised your hand Um, and it was through your job that you became aware of a study happening around the BRCA gene, right?
1: Yes. So um, I heard about this study it's called it was called the before study and they were looking for participants in four major cities la um philadelphia new york and boston and i happen to live in la and they were looking for a thousand people in each of these cities who were of ashkenazi descent and who want to just take this tests to find out if they were BRCA, if they have a BRCA mutation. So I'm like, okay, I'll be part of that thousand. What's the big deal? You know, this is what I do. I always like finding doctors who do clinical trials. So I'll help them get to their number so that they could, you know, gather all the data they need. Never in a million years did I ever think that I would find out that I was positive. Nobody in my family has cancer. Nobody in my family, you know, had any kind of like major illness really. So it was a complete shock. Um, to say the least. I was just not expecting it. And I'm happy that when they call you with your results, you know, a genetic counselor calls you. It's not like just some secretary calls you and says, oh, here, here's your results. Okay, take it from there, see you later, you know, good luck. Um, So, you know, they they set it in in motion, you know, like to set up an appointment to like really have a a one-on-one with genetic counselor to talk to them, to, you know, find out what your options are, what you wanna do, how you wanna take this information and what you wanna do with it. So, um, I ended up meeting with the genetic counselor at Cedar sinai here in LA and he was fabulous and he basically gave me a few options. He said, I could just watch and wait and see what happens, not do anything. I could do surveillance, which is every six months you have to go to have MRIs and, um, mammograms, um, you know, alternating every six months, you don't go more than six months without any screening or you do preventative surgery. So I knew at the place... And time that I was in my life three years ago, I did not want the, you know, I knew I for sure was never gonna wait. And the whole doing the alternating of the, Testing every six months was not what I wanted. I have a friend who her mother, thank God she is a survivor, but she had breast cancer and she goes for screening every six months. And she's so anxious and so worked up before the test, during the test, after the test, until the radiologist comes back and gives her the results. I knew I couldn't live my life like that. Like just waiting for that shoe to drop. Like, you know, I'm I'm also a little bit on the type A personality. So I like to, you know, like when you're driving on the freeway, I wanna know is the exit on the right, is the exit on the left? I like knowing, I like knowing what's next. I don't like being caught off guard. So the fact that one day a doctor would come into the room and tell me you have cancer, I was not, I was not cool with having to have to hear that or want to hear that. So I decided I was gonna go and have the preventative surgery. Um, I had that in July of 2019, Um, the surgery option that I chose for myself was something called uh, deep flap surgery, where it is um, you have a double mastectomy, and immediately afterwards, you have this procedure called deep flap, which is taking the blood vessels and the fat from your lower abdomen. It gets transplanted into your breast tissue. So um, I didn't want implants. I'm from LA again, and I know what implants are like. And I didn't—I don't like how they look. I don't like anything to do with them. Uh, it's a lot more—it's a—it's a lot more of a complicated surgery. The one that I chose to have, but I knew in the long run it would be a much better choice for me. Um, I don't need to worry about having any kind of implant issues. I don't need to worry about any kind of infections. I don't need to swap them out. There, you know, I had my surgery, and it was basically done in a way that, um, you know, they they reattach all the blood vessels. So, you know, you, you're under for close to 10 hours between the double mastectomy and the deep flap, but then you wake up and you have your same breast tissue. You know, you get monitored in the hospital for a really long time, I think for the first 48 hours they check you every hour on the hour to make sure all the blood flow and all the blood vessels that they reconnected are actually working well. And, um, it's kind of cool. Cause like, you know, if you've ever gone for an ultrasound and you hear like that heartbeat, which is really like just the blood pumping that mm-hmm. you're hearing, really the echo of that, that's what they're looking for. They're they're looking to hear the blood pumping. So it was very weird when like, you know, they come in with like these little Dopplers and they check on you every hour. Um, and you know, it was, it was a, long-ish recovery. At the time, it felt long and endless, but looking back three years later, it was really not so bad. So, you know, it was really a good four to five weeks where it was difficult, where, you know, there's a lot that you can't do and you have to really rely on other people and um, make yourself be vulnerable and, and be willing to accept help from others, which I think is a very big deal when you find out that you have this um, BRCA mutation, or even God forbid breast cancer that you want, you know, like you want to do this all by yourself. Like, you, you know, like you're, you're tough, like you can do it, you can do it, but really you have to understand that you can do it. And it's great that you can do it, but other people want to be there to help you and to do, um, you know, to do good for you and to, and to help support you that you're not in this alone and that you shouldn't have to do it alone. And, you know, like the, you know, the like famous quote, like it takes a village, it does take a village because, you know, it's, it's a big, it's a big undertaking. And, you know, some people might think, oh, you know, it's like so selfish that you're going and having the surgery where like, you're, you're, you know, like you can't, you can't function, like you can't, you can't be a regular, you know, like you can't be a regular person, you can't be working, you can't, You can't cook for yourself. You can't shower for yourself. You can't wash your own hair. You know, um, like my, my, I loved my surgeon from UCLA. Um, but my surgeon gave me very specific instructions and he said, you know, no lift, push, pull greater than five pounds for four weeks. Now, if you think about what you lift, push and pull that is greater than five pounds, it's basically every single thing you can imagine. It is you know, if you have a heavy front door, it's pushing open your front door. If it's opening your refrigerator, it's opening your refrigerator. For four weeks, I did not open a refrigerator. Wow. Like very hard to imagine, but I took my doctor's orders literally because I did not want any complications. I wanted to heal as quickly and as easily without any slowing down as possible. So everything he said to do, I did. Um, I think that's also something that, you know, people overlook and say, oh, well, you know, if they say to do this, oh, you know, it's not a big deal if I carry this or if I move this or if I move that. No, you, you want to heal, you want to heal the best you can, then that is what you need to do. And I feel that it worked in, it worked for me. I mean, it was, it was good. My recovery went really well and, you know, Yeah. It's annoying not to be able to open your refrigerator and get a bottle of water from the refrigerator and wait until someone comes to see. Hey, is there anything that you need? But um, you know, I think it really, it really did help put into perspective as to like what I did and why I did it and how you know I'm not gonna, you know, do something that's dumb for in the moment because I wanted to get something when it could set me back in my recovery.
0: What about that recovery period? put like the whole surgery into perspective. Like in what way did that make you realize that like feel feel good about the whole decision overall?
1: So after my surgery, you, you know, my all my tissue went was sent to the pathology lab to get tested, even though I had a, I have the BRCA 2 mutation, but I um my scans were all clear. My breast surgeon also at UCLA is very, I guess you know, I guess it's good that she was on the younger side because she's very into, you know, we're not going to leave any stone unturned. Like every, everything, every piece of tissue that we're getting, we're slicing and dicing and and magnifying and looking at because we don't want any unknowns. Um, Because once, once you have the double mastectomy, you cannot, they can't tell, let's say, let's say they would have found something in, in surgery, like that it would have been Breast cancer. Um, once you have the double mastectomy, there's no way for them to track where any of that um, cancerous breast tissue was because it all got taken away. So, like the the like pathways for it is missing and gone.
0: You mean you mean like you know, where like, it was um, in like, your body?
1: Like where? Yeah, like where it would have been. Like how? Like what other tissue it might have been connected to? Like you know, it's kind of like looking at like um like a like a grid, like a map. Uh, you know, like all the different streets, how they all interconnect and how they're all um, how they all join together. They, they wouldn't be able to see that. So they did a, they did a sentinel node biopsy on me before the double mastectomy. So they inject dye into you so that they could, you know, they could see where all your tissue is and you know, where all the, where everything goes. So they can have like a very clear map that if anything comes back from pathology, they'll know what, where they need to go and where they need to look. So, um, so I had that biopsy and then they did the double mastectomy and then they sent all the tissue into pathology. And then a week later, my surgeon calls me and she says, they found something in pathology. Um, they found something, it was two millimeters, which is the size of the tip of a pencil. Um, something called DCIS, which is ductal and carcinoma, ductal carcinoma in situ, which is like the earliest form of breast cancer in your ducts. Um, so That, like, once I found that out, I knew 100% that I did the right thing and that this was the best choice for me because I didn't want, I didn't want breast cancer, obviously. And I didn't want, I I didn't want the, you know, unknown. And my surgeon said, there's no way to have known how and when this would have grown and to what, you know, like when we would have found it and how we would have found it. Um, So I feel, I know, for me personally, the week of my surgery, my mom wanted me to cancel surgery. She says, you know, there's no point for you to have it. She's like, your grandparents all lived into their late eighties. They were all healthy. You know, why are you doing this? And, you know, I'm still her baby, even though I was 40 years old when I had the surgery, I'm still her baby and I will always be her baby. But, you know, she didn't want me to go through such a major traumatic experience for, in her mind, you know, for nothing. Um, So once I had this information from my surgeon, I'm like, okay, I can tell this to my mom. And now she's at least going to understand why I did it. So it'll give her some peace of mind to know that, okay, you know, it's not, it's not that Natalie did it for nothing. It's that she did it because she knew there was a chance, you know, whatever chance it was, but she knew there was a chance and she wanted to minimize her risk. Um, it happens to be that I have the BRCA mutation, not for my mother, but for my father. And a lot of people have a misconception that it only comes from your mother, but all your genes are 50, 50. So, you know, uh, thank you, dad, for that one. <laughs> um, I, I get my green eyes from him and I get the BRCA mutation from him. It's um, all a package deal. Yes, yeah, seriously, <laughs> but it's okay. Um, so, you know, it's, I mean I'm happier selfishly that it's from my father my, not my mother cuz the the men's chance of breast cancer is much lower than a woman's chance of breast cancer with the BRCA mutation so I would have been m- way more nervous if it was my mom because then I would have like felt all this like extra anxiety for her that now she's going to have to go do all this extra surveillance and have to do all of this you know preventative screening you know um, because because of knowing this like with my dad it's just um, you have to check more, I mean, for everybody, but you have to check more for melanoma, something called ocular melanoma, which I didn't know that was the thing. And um, for for men, they have a slightly higher rate of prostate cancer as well with a BRCA mutation, I believe. And then um, for men and women, it's pancreatic cancer. So you go from being a 1% of the general population for pancreatic cancer to 2%. So it's not like a crazy jump. So it's not, you know, I mean, my genetic counselor said there's no real screening for it. So he's like, and whatever screening there is, is very, very invasive. And he says, it's not worth it. Um, So, you know, it, it made me feel better that it's my dad, Um, you know, but it, it was, it was still hard. It was still hard having to tell my mom that they found something because what if I didn't go and have the surgery, then, then what, then, then you know, like, I don't even want to think what could have happened because thank God I didn't do it that way. Like I, I, I I caught it before I could have ever turned into anything. So even though they did find something in pathology, because I had the double mastectomy, I don't need, I didn't need to have any kind of chemo or radiation or anything like that because A, it was too small. And, um, they, they classified it as stage zero. So it was like really nothing. Um, but because I had the double mastectomy, I have almost minimal breast tissue left so there was no reason to do any of that other
0: like there's um, nothing for them to even do radiation on yes correct so did just, you, you know, Like, once you tested positive did you like break the news to your family like how did when you tested positive for the gene like what did you do from there do you have so I didn't do
1: anything, I actually didn't do anything right away. Um, I mean, I made the appointments with a genetic counselor and with um, plastic surgeons and breast surgeons, um, but I didn't say anything. I remember we flew to New York for my sister-in-law's wedding the, the night after I met with a genetic counselor and I didn't say anything like I, I, wow. my husband and I knew, but nobody else knew. Um, I just, I didn't say anything even to my mother. I didn't tell her anything until after I met with um, a second set of surgeons from UCLA. And once I decided I was gonna have surgery, only then did I tell her. Um, I didn't. I didn't know how to process it because I didn't know. Like, it's still it's still so new. People going for preventative surgery, you know, like you know the, the famous poster child was Angelina Jolie. Like everyone knows that she went and go, went ahead and had that. But nobody knows. Like, that no. There's no. There's no first degree or second degree type, type of a person that you know who had the surgery who you can go and ask them you know, their thoughts and their questions. Like, okay, so you're BRCA positive. What does that mean? What do you need to do now? Um, so I feel part of my, I don't want to say like mission, but part of my, I guess, purpose of maybe finding out that I had a BRCA2 mutation is that I'm a voice for people. So I want to tell my story. I want to share it. I want people to know, um, it's not a, it's not a death sentence. You know, it's not, it's scary and you might break down and you might cry. I'm not so emotional. So I, 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 I didn't really cry when I found out. I, I was more in shock. Um, but it's more for, it's more for knowing that there were other people who did this before you and that, you know, it is a scary road and it is a long road. Um, but, you know, you can come out on the end and you're fine and you're healthy and you l- you know, you look almost like you did before the surgery and you have, you know, you have, y- you have options, I guess, basically that's the thing, you know, like people always think, oh, well, you know, then I have to have a double mastectomy and then I'm gonna be flat and like, I don't want that. And I don't, you know, like all these worst case scenario ideas pop into your head because you don't know anybody who you can talk to and there's no, there's no person you can say, well, how does this feel? Like your surgeon could tell you how you're gonna feel after surgery and what the pain threshold is gonna be like and what your limitations are but unless somebody else who actually went through it can tell you, you don't, you don't know what they mean. Like, you know, okay, so you won't be able to stand up straight. What does that mean? You can't stand up straight. Like, you know, you can't sleep flat on your back right away. What does that mean? You can't sleep flat on your back. Like people don't understand. Um, And I feel, you know, having somebody who can explain that, I think takes away a lot of the scary aspect of it and the you know, the apprehension of wanting to go and do any preventative surgery, because it's, you know, you can get your questions answered, I guess is the best thing I could say.
0: Right. Did, did you consider doing, I know that, I know that the, the BRAC mutations are also tied to ovarian cancers and that someone will also opt to have, I think it's called an ovaectomy or what it's, it makes sense when you, when you're, when you're reading it, but it's really hard to say. Um, was that something that you like considered or thought about? And were you thinking at all about like having more kids or things like that? So I, that was
1: actually what I thought about. It was um, my plan to actually do the ovaries first and then do the breast second, but we ended up switching the order of things. Um, yes, because the, the testing that they have for breast cancer, you know, mammograms, breast MRI, you know, ultrasound is pretty, it's pretty Okay. You know, and and it can detect stuff, but for ovarian cancer, it's very difficult to detect something until it's found late. Um, And the data says that the best time to remove your ovaries is um, between ages 40 and 45 if you have a BRCA mutation because um, you get ahead of the potential of ovarian cancer because what they're finding is that around early premenopausal stage is when things start going a little wacky, crazy. I don't know exactly what the, you know, best layman's term is. And um, they, they feel that that's the best thing to do. So I was, uh, I think 41 when I had my ovaries taken out. Um, We were happy with our family size. We have three beautiful children. And um, I, like my surgeon said, she's like, if you want another baby, you have one now. And like (laughs) that, That, that that wasn't on in our future and on the table, so it was okay. Um, the only the only drawback of having your ovaries taken out is you go into early menopause. Um, so you know because I have because I already had the double mastectomy and what uh, little cancer that they did find was not hormone related. I'm allowed to be on hormone replacement therapy, so I don't have any symptoms or side effects, I guess is what the right term is for uh, menopause. Like I don't have hot flashes. Thank God. Um, I don't have any of that kind of stuff. So it's, it, it's, it's okay. Um, so I'm, I stay on hormone replacement until my early fifties, which is when my body would naturally go into menopause. And then around then my gynecologist or my gynecological oncologist, we have to figure out you know, how I wean myself off and what I do because I don't need to stay on it indefinitely just, you know, for the next several years.
0: It sounds like it's kind of like a, I mean, if it helps with the symptoms of menopause, then when you would naturally go into menopause, why not just stay on it? No,
1: because I think, no, because by then I'd be done like by the early fifties, then I'll, like I'm, I'm
0: oh, I'd you'd be, be like over the hump of the, like of the, get symptoms over the hump and hump I don't need anything.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, Okay, so I, I, I stay on this until whenever, I, I don't, I don't know what markers they use to find out if I've really fully completed menopause or anything. I will ask at my next checkup in December and I will, <laughs> I will message you and let you know. Um, but I'm not exactly sure how they calculate all of that kind of stuff. That but is yeah, so fascinating. The ovaries, And they found nothing on my ovaries. My ovaries were clean. So that also made me feel good. I, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know what the scenario would have been if they found something on my ovaries. I don't know what would have been the course of treatment after that because I didn't, they found nothing. So I guess I was, I was lucky in that sense. So I don't know um, what would have needed to happen to me.
0: Was that surgery overall like less invasive than the mastectomy? Oh yeah.
1: I mean, it's three little holes that they cut and they use a candela, which is like a really long, kind of like a, a really long needle type of a thing. And then that's how they go in. It's all laparoscopic. Um, Yeah, it was fine. I I just ended up having um, an additional, like when I was under, because if we were already going to go under, I had my plastic surgeon. We coordinated the surgeries and he did nipple reconstruction for me when I had the ophorectomy. So this, I was under for one thing and got both things done at the same time. Um, but this, the recovery was fine. Uh, I mean, like you you can't, same thing, you can't lift for a few weeks. And I think I was able to drive after a few days, um, but it was it's a much simpler surgery. Like with the, also I had the double mastectomy and the deep flap. So I was cut on top and at my abdomen. So it was like a double section cutting. Um, so the recovery for me for that was much harder. But I think by like five weeks post deep flap surgery, I was already driving. And I believe even pushing a shopping cart, Um, not carrying all my groceries in at the same time, like most people do where like, you know, you give yourself a challenge, how many bags can you hold on your arms? I I will get
0: them all on my arm and we are making one trip to the door. God damn it. Yeah. So no, (laughs) I I learned that Walmart
1: pickup. I learned it then after my surgery, cause you could place your order, drive up to Walmart, they put the groceries in your car, and then you can take however long it takes to carry each bag into your house and put stuff away, and then come back. Um, because pushing the shopping cart, I was very—I was—I was more worried about actually pushing the shopping cart than doing anything else because the shopping cart can get heavy once
0: you fill it with groceries. Oh yeah, and like those it? muscles are like your uh-huh. armpit basically, which is yeah. all very adjacent. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I just—I—I I
1: really, I really took it very literally my whole recovery, like I didn't, you know, I didn't lift, I didn't, you know, I didn't cook for four weeks. And we have the community I live in, in, in LA, specifically in the Valley, they were amazing. Like they, they made food for us for four weeks for, uh, you know, dinners for four weeks. Like my kids every day would be like, Oh, who's cooking us dinner? What are they making? We're so curious, you know? And it was, I think the only time in my life where I didn't hear complaining from my children about what they were eating for dinner. And, you know, like that—that—that that, that in itself was a miracle. Like, okay, I'm not cooking, but someone else is cooking, and you're actually eating it, and you like it, and you think it's good. So you know, it's a win all around. Um, you know, it just—it just really shows you that people do, you know, uh, care for you and care for your children, because you know, it is—it's it, scary. Like how you asked earlier, you know, did I tell anybody? I didn't—I didn't really tell anybody about anything about the surgery until like. Maybe a month before I had my surgery, like one, once I once I officially booked it, I knew I was doing it and everything. Then I started telling people just because I needed the help, I needed people to offer their services and you know to take my kids to camp and to pick them up from camp and you know whatever needed to happen with them. Um, it it is it is humbling, I guess is the right word, especially for somebody like with. A type eight type personality because you don't like asking for people to help you. You you know you want to do everything on your own, but you know you you can't. And if you don't ask for anybody for help, I think it ends up hurting your recovery and slowing down your recovery because you need you need people there. You, you need you need the support system, um, and you need to know that people really care and that you know. Some of the people who made me food were people who live in my neighborhood, but I don't talk to them. I don't really have much to do with them, but, you know, it's just a kindness that they do and that, you know, they wanted to, you know, they want to show, okay, they're not going to come visit me. And like, you know, I had a friend every week um, when my husband and kids would go to shul, um, she would come and sit with me and keep me company so that I wouldn't be lonely and by myself. And also because I couldn't get water out of the <laughs> fridge. So like somebody would be around to help me, right. um, you know. So I think I think it's it's very important to have a network to rely on um, because it really it really just I mean, it just made the it made recovery better because I didn't need to worry what are my kids gonna be eating for dinner tonight? How am I going to try to figure out to cook something when I can't even, you know, I can't even open the microwave on my
0: own? Right. Did you you know you've mentioned this you know, accepting help from people a, a couple of different times. Was there something that you, that you did or that you told yourself or like a mantra or something that you had that made it easier to accept the help that people were offering?
1: Um, I don't think anything specific. I just knew that I, I needed to not, I don't want to say be a baby because that's, I think the wrong terminology, but like I needed to kind of grow up and know that people want to help. And like, You know, that's the nature, you know, that's human nature. It's to be helpful and to be, um, you know, uh, resourceful and to be giving and to be generous. So, you know, why am I denying somebody the ability to do that kindness to me because I want to be selfish and I don't want to take the help? I think i mean i don't know i i yeah no
0: that that makes sense And also i mean listen at a certain point if you can't open the fridge then someone else has got to open the fridge like there's no other way around that
1: i know i i mean i would sit and wait for my mom to come in in the morning after she dropped off my kids to camp you know can you fill up my water bottle because i already finished drinking it you know um it's just it's 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 hard because you just you know you need to make sure that um you take care of yourself and i guess you know that's why I did have the surgery so I could take care of myself and I could be around you know god willing for a very long time and not have to worry about being sick or have any kind of illness related to the BRCA mutation so you know I really think it's important to know you know it's 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 important to know that you need to be vulnerable and it's not a fun place to be it's not it's not it's not I think what most people think about when you know, you find out that you have a certain diagnosis, but if you don't let yourself be be vulnerable, you won't let yourself get helped by others because you're going to, you're going to be pushing them away. And the whole point is, is to bring them closer and not push people away.
0: Right. Do you think that having had that experience of that whole recovery has made it easier for you to accept help in other areas of your life, not related to that?
1: Um, not as much. I, I wish I could say yes. Um, it, I'm still, as my husband likes to say, like, I'm very stubborn. Um, so it's very, it's it's very hard for me to accept help from other people. It's just, it's not my nature. Um, I wish, I wish it would have changed. But what did change is that I now make a lot more meals for people than I did in the past. Like, for like complete randoms who I do not know, like I'll see it come on, you know, our, our community WhatsApp and I'll make a meal for somebody. And I, I don't even know, I don't know anything about them. I don't even know who they are. Um, just because I feel, you know, it's so easy to make a meal for somebody or okay. Not, not everybody finds it to be easy because not everybody has the aptitude to cook and whatever, but I find it's something that so easy to do if you can't cook you know have pizza delivered to them or have you know whatever take out or you know a gift card to a restaurant so they can order whatever they want I feel it's really it really put into perspective how that changes how your recovery and how your illness um, feels to you like deep down because it shows that somebody else is caring about you and somebody else is taking up their time to help you Um, And I I think it doesn't get enough, I don't call it like credit because it's not credit, but like it's not talked about enough that like, you know, being there for somebody, you know, helping them is great, but, you know, being there for somebody who you really don't know is even bigger and even greater because you're really just helping that person just truly for helping them, not because you know, they're going to be your friend and they're going to invite you to their next you know, party that they're making, or they're going to you know, give you better seats when you go to some kind of concert or whatever. It's really just out of you know, the goodness of your heart and wanting to help somebody have a better
0: road to their recovery. Yeah, I, I definitely hear it. It's one of those things because like, listen, if you didn't have that network around you, then if, if you were doing this in a vacuum, you know, if you were recovering in a home by yourself, eventually you would need to eat. And that would probably mean opening the fridge when you're not supposed to. And, right. you know, obviously, and, and that delays your recovery and everything like that. And I think that especially because meal trains are kind of so common, you you know, they're they're always happening. The, you know, this one had a baby, this one has something going on, this one, you know, there's a there's a shiva house, there's a there's an illness, there's whatever. Um, it's easy to get overloaded by them but you're right like just sending over supper in whatever form really does make a huge difference
1: right like a lot of times I just make double of whatever I'm serving for my family like I know that this is the dinner that my family really likes and enjoys eating I'll just double it and then I send that and it's not you know I actually personally like making Friday night dinner because to me I find that the easiest um but that's just me but um you know I just find It just, and also it helps the person receiving the meal thinking that somebody cares about them. And I feel that's, that's the biggest thing. Like when you're going through like any kind of sickness, but like really with the whole BRCA diagnosis, so many people are so nervous to talk about it, to share about it because they're embarrassed and they think, oh, you know, like it's like a stigma and it's this and it's that. But like, I don't think there's a stigma, me personally, other people I believe do have some kind of stigma associated with it and feel that like, you know, it's like a black mark, you know, on their name or on their person or whatever. And, you know, they don't want people to know about it and they don't want to talk about it. And then they don't ask for help and then they have to do everything on their own. And I feel, you know, that's really hard. And then, you know, our nature as, you know, human beings, and especially as women, you know, we want to help. Like it's, we're, we're not made to like, not help and not, And not be there for other people. And I feel, you know, um, not, I think a lot of it is like taking the stigma away from having these diagnoses. Like, I I just feel like the more people talk about it and the more people make it, I don't want to say normal because it's not the right word, but they make it less, I guess, less stigmatized. Don't, you know, don't put any, if you stop giving it power, then you're not going to make it something that people fear. And, you know, it's not something that's fearful. Yes, it's it's scary. It's a, it's scary to find out that diagnosis, but you shouldn't be fearful from it. You know, we live in an age where there's so much medical advancement, so much technology around to help you if you do have this diagnosis that like you can, you, you can have surgery and you can overcome it. And there are so many different versions of, you know, surgery, preventative surgery for a BRCA2 mutation that, you know, you can do and move on with your life and, you know, kind of put it on the back burner like I don't think about my diagnosis anymore because it doesn't affect me.
0: Right, it's just it's just a thing that that happened. I'm curious if you would have felt, you know, you mentioned that after the mastectomy they found this stage 0 growth. Do you think that you would have felt differently about your surgery had they not found anything? I don't
1: think I would have felt differently about the surgery. I would have felt differently about how explained it to my parents because you know i'm i'm first generation american so you know culturally things are very different when you're first generation and you know uh you i think you have a the relationship that you have with your parents is on a totally different scope than if you were you know american like apple pie um at least according to the friends that i have like i feel i i see the relationships that we all have with our parents are very different um so I, st- I mean, I still, I still would have done the surgery. Like if, if I found out today, you know, erase the last three years and find out today that I had a BRCA2 mutation, I'd still go and do the same without surgery, without a question. Um, I feel it's, it's, it was the best choice and the best decision to have the surgery, um, even if they didn't, even if they wouldn't have found anything, because I have peace of mind. Like, I think... My chance of breast cancer, according to my breast surgeon, is less than two percent right now. So, when it was forty percent before surgery. So, you know that thirty-eight percent difference is a really very very large number. And you know it. I I, I don't need to like I don't need to hang it over my head, and I don't need to, you know, be worried about it and be thinking about it. Like I don't I I honestly do not think about it. Like I went out with my friends last night, and we were talking about something, and it doesn't it doesn't even enter my train of thought anymore.
0: Wow. So you really, so, you, you know, really did achieve that full peace of mind.
1: Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, I think. Yeah. I'll, I'll, like when I went into surgery the night before surgery, I slept right. you like, you know, you have to wake up at four am, you have to wash with all this like special cleanser, like these antibacterial cleansers or whatever. Um, and I remember going to sleep at like 10, 11 o'clock at night. Um, and I fell asleep. Like I had no problems. I didn't. I didn't toss and turn. I didn't have nightmares. I woke up totally refreshed. When I got to the hospital, you know, that morning with my husband, I was very at peace and very like I had like an inner calmness. Which, if you know me, I'm not very calm. So um, the fact that I had that was like weird. And I think it's very telling. And it just shows that like I deep down I knew that I was doing this for the right reasons and the outcome would be good and that. I'd be fine. And that everything I'm doing is for the right reasons. And, you know, um, the path that I'm being led on was not only chosen by me. Like, I really feel like God set me on this path to, to find these right surgeons and to find out that I had this mutation at the time that I found out that I had the mutation. Um, You know, all these other things were set in motion to happen. And I just was super calm, like just relaxed. And I didn't, I think it was just, maybe it was telling that I knew that I was doing it for the right reasons. And like, like my brain and my heart and everything just knew that it was fine and it was going to be okay. And maybe that's why I wasn't nervous. I I don't know, but I was totally calm. Like I was not hysterical. I wasn't crying. I wasn't, you know, I was just
0: calm. I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to achieve that because it's such a big decision, you know, to go in and have this major surgery and, and to make those, you know, their major medical decisions. And I'm, and I'm so glad that it worked out in, in all of the best ways for you. I can't believe it, but our time has flown by. Uh, If somebody wants to be in touch with you, Natalie, where can they, where can, how can Um, they they reach you?
1: They can send me an email at natalieherschel at gmail.com, H-I-R-S-C-H-E-L. And I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody might have.
0: Fantastic. The last thing that I want to ask you, Natalie, is what does it mean to you to make an impact?
1: Um, I think it means just to make a difference and to, you know, be, I guess, be a positive influence on
0: others. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Natalie. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rafi. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Natalie, her email is in the show notes. On the last episode, we went down memory lane for the third anniversary of this show. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, a clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 17 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Yitzquitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.nyc. As always, here's to making an impact together.